Welcome back to the Modern Cop Podcast. I'm going to take the marbles out of my mouth. This is about the fourth time. Fourth time. There I go again. All well. About the fourth time, Jason Mao and I have started this conversation because uh, uh, I'm just getting tongue tied over and over and over again. Uh, good evening, afternoon, morning to uh, everybody listening in. I suppose when this episode drops, it will be about four o'clock in the morning on the West Coast. Um, joining me, as I said, Jason Mao. Jason spent time as a U.S. Army paratrooper, uh, police officer for two agencies, a State Department contractor. He's a motivational speaker and an author, and we have a lot to talk about. Jason, thank you for joining me. Kevin, you're awesome, buddy. Thanks for letting me be here. Uh, Jason and I live all of about 20 minutes from each other, and it's just uh, uh, taking some time to finally get this worked out and ironed out, and, uh, and well, here we are. We're worlds apart. That's, that's two completely different, <laughs> two completely different cities. cities yeah. Is there a freeway separating us uh, next to us? Next yeah. to us. Yeah. All right. Fair enough. So but you're yeah. asking a lot. You, know. <laughs> you, you cross certain streets or, uh, or freeways around here and you might as well be in a different <laughs> County. So meanwhile, people in Texas with 270 counties are like, I have no idea what they're talking right. about. <laughs> So, uh, Jason, I, uh, I gave you a little bit of a heads up, uh, which some of my past guests listening in are going to be upset that you got a heads up as opposed to uh, they just got blindsided by this question, but I want to dive right in. And I'm going to tweak this question a little bit, Jason, because you are a member of the G Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, yes. uh, and so you are not an alcohol drinker. I do not have my trademark bourbon with me. Uh, I have my water with me, and that's probably the only water I've consumed today. Well, if uh, you feel like getting liquored up, go for it, buddy, because oh, those are always great conversations. I, it might be best for both of us that we don't. Um, <laughs> don't let me stop your <laughs> sobriety. So there, there are people that I answer to who uh, used to work very closely with you. So I don't, I don't you need to answer who the, you are. You know who you are. I don't need to answer those questions come Monday. Uh, like I said, your old, your old pal, Dan, if he's listening to this episode, Dan wanted to call in and tell stories, but you have stories. About I know Dan. where the, I know where the bodies are buried. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I've been in Dan's world a couple of times. So, so Jason, you can sit down and, uh, or I should say, you can barbecue or grill, uh, just share a meal with anybody, living or dead. Who is it? And what are you eating? Oh, uh, George Washington. Hot damn. All right. I, I would sit down and I would have uh, a full rack of ribs with a side of bacon with George Washington. And I would just pick that man's brain. Uh, the pivot point of all of humanity. And he is the indispensable man, the father of our country. He was a statesman. He was a general. You know, his force of will alone brought this, the 13 colonies together. It was only because of him that we were able to gather and do the Continental Convention, the Convention of States. And, and uh, he's just a, he's a hero and a mentor. And, a, and uh, I would, yeah, I would sit and I would barbecue and, eat bacon with that man and be content with my life. Having spent some time with that guy. Absolutely. And you think about the, uh, just the, the sheer, uh, bravery or, or maybe, uh, like no F's given type of attitude that, <laughs> that it takes to just sign your name on what was effectively a death warrant, exactly. right? Your, your declaration of independence got before the King of England and he just was, he was out for you. Had, right. had it not gone so well, every signer who was still alive would have been put to death. Well, the army came to him and they gave him the job of king and he turned it down, you know, and he would have been a magnificent king, but he knew that the next guy might not have been so good. Right. And they just spent so much blood and treasure detaching themselves from a monarchy. But can you imagine who else would turn down 
that, right? And that's why he only stayed two terms in office is because he knew that was too much power for one person. And he set the standard for the rest of the presidents that it's only two terms, you know, and of course until FDR and then Congress had to step in and, and put the, the actual limits in the constitution that you can only serve two terms as president, but he's, he's, he set the standard. And then after being, you know, he could have been president for life too. No one was going to vote against him. And after two terms, he walked away. So there was twice he gave up power. You know, that nobody does that. And what a magnificent human being to be able to, to have the moral courage to do that. For yes. the Betterment of society, you know, and I would, I would toast that man with bacon and, and uh, it would just be an honor just, 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 to, just to be around him. Absolutely. And, and again, you, you highlight the consummate statesman yes. that he, that he was my, uh, um, I've told this story a couple times, but I, uh, I fell off the uh, the deep end into Ancestry.com and family history. My son was born because mm-hmm. I my four weeks because my son was born uh, a little bit premature turned into a seven week stint off of work oh. um, uh, so that I could take care of sure. him and, and sure. help family my wife first. out. Family yeah. first. Absolutely. Yep. And uh, many a night at three o'clock in the morning up with him or my wife and I would work in shifts because uh, I had already worked graveyards before then. So I didn't much mind being up in the middle of the night. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would sit with my laptop and dive into ancestry.com. And I didn't believe it when I saw it at first. And it took some additional digging. But I, my seventh great grandfather, Conrad Stuntz, crossed the Delaware with Washington. Oh, wow. After having been brought over, I say here, we're in Arizona, but here to the U.S. Um, or to the colonies uh, by the British as a Hessian mercenary. <laughs> And he and his brother-in-law like took a look around and were like, it's pretty cool here. We like it here. Yeah. <laughs> and then they proceeded to steal officers uniforms, sneak out of their British fort and defect to the continental army. Uh, that's awesome. And that was my, uh, that's my cool. I did, I had no idea about that for, you know, the first almost 30 years of my life. Yeah. So that's really cool to have that legacy that he was there when that happened. That's an amazing story. The whole cross in the Delaware and taking on the Hessian mercenaries. Yes, and I'm not going to highlight the dick move that it was to ambush your former unit <laughs> that you were a part of, but we're just going to blame it. Yeah, that's America. We'll, we'll attack you on Christmas Eve. We'll attack Eve. you on Christmas yeah. Eve and cross a frozen river to, to do, do it. it. We yeah, don't I mean, care. We'll walk seven miles in the snow <laughs> in the middle of the night, you know. Valley yeah. Forge? <laughs> Please. We're good with it. Yeah. Uh, and, and I suppose from then we could, you know, we would talk about, uh, uh, George Washington and, and his, uh, his time as a statesman and as a military leader and you yourself spent some time in the military, but prior to that, what laid the foundation for Jason Mao? Oh, I'm a third generation Arizonan. I was born and raised basically down the street from where we are right now. Okay. Went to high school here, the whole nine yards. Um, Graduated from Mesa High School, so I'm a fighting jackrabbit from Mesa High School. Um, and then after that, as a good Mormon boy, it was time for me to go on my proselyting mission. You sure. know, be one of those guys that wears the suits and rides the bicycle. Uh, so I turned down. I had some college opportunities to wrestle in college. Um, but back then, they, they didn't hold on to your scholarship like they do now. A lot of colleges recognize mil- or military service or missionary service, and they'll hang on to those okay. scholarships. Okay. They didn't do that back in the late eighties. And so I had to make the choice to either wrestle in college or go on my mission. So I, I, this is something good Mormon boys do. And so I decided to do that, go on my mission. And I went up to the Pacific Northwest to serve my mission, which was a completely foreign country to me, you know, because I'm used to the 
we decorate here in shades of brown. Right. <laughs> and, and there's that big obnoxious orange thing that's in the sky yes. 300 days a 300 year. 300 days a year. And so I go up to the Pacific Northwest where there's trees and water and like rocky mountains. <laughs> <And> clouds. <laughs> and, you know, I'm in northern Idaho and parts of Canada. And I didn't see the sun for weeks. And, you know, and we got so much snow that I couldn't open my front door and the toilet froze. I had no idea a toilet could freeze. I didn't know that until right now. Thank you right? for educating Imagine me. Imagine <laughs> my surprise when I got up to give my morning, my morning, you know, yeah. pee. And I'm peeing and it's splashing everywhere. I'm like, what the hell? Because I can't, I'm still asleep. I'm like, what's going on? Right? And so I, I, I turn the light on and the, the bowl is frozen. And it's like coming out the top of it. You know, because water expands when it sure. freezes. And so it was like, like a modern art masterpiece <laughs> sticking out of the top. And I had no idea. I had no idea that that happened. Um, and so it was completely foreign to me, uh, even though it was still state, stateside. So I did my two years, came back home. And uh, anybody that's listening that grew up in East, East Phoenix, East Mesa, and, you know, the, 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 that part back in the late 80s, they know that, as a Mormon boy, you come home and if you're not either going to BYU or getting married within six months of returning home, there was something wrong with you. There wasn't anything wrong with me. I just, I'm not, I didn't want to go to college. I had no financial means to do that. I grew up abjectly poor and in broken, a broken home. And, uh, and I didn't want to get married because I had just had this amazing adventure and I, I knew there was a great big world out there and I wanted to experience it. Uh, and that was something I wasn't going to be able to do with a, a family and children, you know, have all these amazing travel and meet new people and experience things. And so I was just kind of spinning my wheels. I was working for my buddy's dad as a, as a plumber and I was just trying to figure life out and I was making great money, but I was just spending it. I had nothing, you know? Uh, and so I was just kind of treading along. And then one day I uh, got up and I turned on CNN and this pretty blonde lady was telling me about that. We had just, declared war on Saddam Hussein. You know, he had just invaded Kuwait and we were building this coalition and, and they showed scenes of soldiers marching and the airplanes and the ships and stuff like that. And, and I, I got this, this burning sensation in my chest and I was like, Oh, that looks like fun. I want to be a part of this. There's a war going on and I want to go fight. And so like a, like a pure blood, red blooded American red meat eating boy, who wants to fight in a war, where do you think I went? Off to the army. Right. Well, I, I went to the recruiting <laughs> Off office. Off to the recruiting right? office. So which recruiter, which recruiter do you think I went to? I'm a, All my Marines listening are like, you son of a bitch. <laughs> well, no, I did. Because I, I, I'm like, well, I'm going to be a Marine. I'm a red-blooded American male. i chest-pounding wrestler, you know, and, and I'm going to fight. If I'm going to fight, I want to be with the best, and I want to I do that. And so I walked into the Marine Corps recruiting office, and on the wall right there was a picture of that guy. You know, he had the camouflage face and the M16 and the mm -hmm. K-bar knife and the rope. And, and right above it, it said recon. And I walked in there and the staff sergeant met me and I said, sir, I want to be that guy right there. And in pure Marine speak, he didn't miss a beat. He goes, yo, bay on Marine, <laughs> right? <laughs> I said, yeah, yeah, that's what I want. I want to be that guy. Can I be that guy? And he goes, the Marines will decide who you're going to be. And so I said, well, does that mean I, there's a possibility I could be a Marine cook or a Marine truck driver? I mean, no offense to the service and support people, but, you know, it's a giant machine and all the wheels have to spin, but that's not what I wanted. I wanted to be that guy. And, he, and he's like, yeah, if the Marines decide that's where you'll be, you'll be a rifleman first. And he gives me all the spiel. And I'm like, all right, I appreciate your time. Thank you. 
I walked out and I went right next door to the army recruiter, walked right into the army recruiter and the staff sergeant sitting there. And there's a, that guy, right? Right. It's almost the exact same outfit, but above it, it said Ranger. Right. And so I said, I want to be that guy. And he goes, okay. <laughs> sure. Sign here. Yeah. He's like, Hey, if you pass the test, you can do whatever you want. I was like, are you serious? Yeah. Just sign right here. Uh, uh Okay. You know, and so I have to, I have to do the ASVAB and all that stuff. And, and uh, so as we're, as we're doing all this pre-testing and he's qualifying, he's, we're filling paperwork out and everything. He goes, well, what's your long-term goals? You know, do you want to make the army a career or, or you want to, what do you want to get out of the army? What do you want to do? And I said, you know, I've always wanted to be a cop, you know, ever since I was little, I just had this, this desire to be a cop, to, to help people and to rescue people and to to fight bad guys and to drive fast. And, you know, all the, you know, I swallowed the Kool-Aid with all the Miami Vice and, mm-hmm. the, you know, the Adam 12 and Dragnet and, you know, all that stuff. And, and uh, he goes, he kind of gets a gleam in his eye and he looks at me and he goes, have I got a job for you? He goes, how about if you're an, an MP and a paratrooper? And I said, I can do both. And he goes, oh yeah. And he had me. He had me right there. He was like a used car salesman. He knew it. He knew he had me. And so I joined the army as a, as a military police officer, but I also went to airborne school and worked with the, and I was, it was a paratrooper at the same time. And so they sent me to Fort Bragg and, uh, my first duty assignment was with the military intelligence. Uh, I don't know why they picked me. I, I still to this day don't know why, but, uh, I ended up doing some really interesting things with the military intelligence as an MP and as a paratrooper. Um, I did that for quite a, quite a little bit, um, had some amazing experiences working with those guys. They are the dumbest smart people I've ever met, <laughs> right? I mean, these people, I mean, three languages, they're doing calculus in their head, you know, they can plot, you know, they, they're masters at, at topography and they can plot satellites, but you can't trust them to cross the friggin' street. You have to hold their hand across in the street. I mean, it's just the weirdest thing. Um, got to do some really fun stuff with them. And then I was transferred over to the, uh, to uh, an airborne MP company, ended up uh, being deployed over to, to Haiti and some other places. Um, and then, uh, and orders came in to, uh, to go to Hawaii. Uh, actually my, I met my wife in the military, my ex-wife, my wife at the time, and uh, she got transferred to Hawaii. And so I had to reenlist. I had to make a choice between going to ranger school or going to Hawaii. I chose to be a husband and a father and went to Hawaii instead of, rain, instead of joining the Rangers. Um, and I regret that to this day after everything that I've done. I, 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 I should have found a way to work it out, but I was thinking, you know, I'm a family, I'm a husband and a father. I've got two kids and I need to be with them. And, and that just wasn't going to work if I went to the Ranger Battalion. So uh, I went to Hawaii, ended up uh, joining the, uh, the um, Army SRT, uh, the, which is the military's version of a SWAT team became the team sergeant there. We were responsible for everything in the whole Hawaiian islands, all of it. And then the other, the, like uh, Kwajalein and, and Johnston Island and Wake Island and all the other things the Pacific Ocean touched. And so I got to do a lot of really interesting things there. Uh, one of the things I did do is I worked with uh, JTF-6, which is a joint federal counter-narcotics task force. And they was stationed out of Hawaii and they did a marijuana eradication. And so the, uh, the U.S. Marshals and the DEA and FBI would uh, use my team as cadre to teach them how to rappel out of helicopters and, 
and uh, do long range surveillance and, and, you know, uh, um, fast rope and all that stuff, uh, how to, how to stalk and how to, you know, look for booby traps and stuff. And so I got, I got to work with them quite a bit and we did a lot of really fun stuff together. Got to do some bodyguard work and just everything you think a normal SWAT team does, uh, for a city I did for the federal government. And, um, while I was doing that, I actually became, I got to know the U S Marshal for the Hawaiian islands and he took a real liking to me. And, uh, I got to the point where I was, I either had to make the decision to make a career out of it or get out and find something else to do. Cause I was getting up to my 10 year, 10 year point. And, uh, the U S Marshal said, you should be a Marshal. And I said, I should be. <laughs> yes, sir. You're right. <laughs> you're right. I should be a U.S. Marshal. I like what you guys do. Because uh, I worked, I helped them with the, the fugitive task force and all that stuff, asset seizures and whatever, everything else the marshals do. And uh, and so I took all the tests and everything there in, in the Hawaii with their recruiters there in Hawaii and uh, got picked up to be a U.S. Marshal to go to Glencoe, Georgia and be go through their training f- facility. So I told the military, I said, I'm done. I'm out. You know, I've, I've ended my second and period of enlistment and I'm processing out because I'm going to go be a U.S. Marshal. So I got out of the military. I was processing out of the military. And about that time, the, uh, the government shut down uh, because Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich couldn't get along. And, you know, Bill Clinton was getting hum, hummers under the, the table. and everything. She did you know. inhale. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and, and so they shut the government down. And, and one of the, one of the uh, consequences of that is that they didn't, have any academy classes at the federal agencies. So my name went on a piece of paper on a list and it sat on somebody's shelf. And so I, I didn't have a job and now I, I was leaving the army. And so I shotgunned my resume out to um, pretty much every agency in the state of Arizona. Cause that was my home state. Um, this is where my support base was family to help us. And I figured I would have a better shop as a native Arizona and getting a job than, than trying to go to wherever, sure, Texas or whatever. Um, and so I, I came home, went through all the testing processes and I was actually, uh, picked up. I was hired by Pima County down in Tucson and went through their pre-academy. And while I was going through their pre-academy, somebody made the mistake of telling me that, uh, we were going to send you to Ajo, Arizona, A-J-O, Ajo, Arizona. And, uh, for those of you in podcast land that don't know where Ajo is, imagine, uh, an open pit mind with a general store just on the edge of it. And that's pretty much what Ajo is. It's right out in the middle of nowhere. It's actually right in the middle of, uh, error of the Navy gunnery range for their, for their jets to practice bombs. Cause there's it's nothing a bustling else out there. Metropolis. They, they don't it's care beautiful. about anything. So they just drop bombs around Ajo. Um, my wife, uh, at the time had never been, um, anywhere here in Arizona. So she didn't know what Ajo was. She called it Ajo instead of Ajo. So I said, well, I'm going to have to show you. We drove out there and spent the day out in lovely downtown Ajo, went to the Ajo Country Club, looked at some properties. Uh, and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be, you know, a, a dumpster fire. I'm like, I can't raise my family in this, but I don't have a choice. This is my job. And so we're driving back through the Barry M. Goldwater gunnery range out in the middle of nowhere, and she just starts to cry. And I said, oh going what's the matter what happened she goes well, we left hawaii for this I'm like ah oh, crap i gotta fix this and so got home woke up the next morning and just started making phone calls to all the agencies that i had been had gotten all the testing with 
And I was just waiting for a phone call back from any one of them. And so I told them all what has happened. I said, Monday, I start with Pima County at their academy. I don't want to work for Pima County, but they're going to start paying me on Monday. I want to work for you. And I told this to all, the, to all of them. I said, what can we do? And I, the agency in question called back. They were the first ones to call back. And uh, so I went and met the chief, and he hired me as a civilian uh, employee until they could get me into the next academy. And I, I filed papers and emptied boxes of ammunition and washed patrol vehicles and whatever for a couple of weeks until the academy started. And that started my career as a civilian cop. And that, uh, that chief... Uh... And we will call it the agency in question because uh, one of us still works there. Um, <laughs> but that that chief, wink, 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 nudge, nudge. That chief, you had an interesting story about something on his shelf. Yes, yes. This chief was a diehard combat Marine recon Vietnam vet, and I walked in there, and I, my interview with him was pretty simple. He looked at my resume, and he looked at me, and he goes, "Paratrooper, huh?" I said, yes, sir. He goes, now it's almost as good as a Marine. (laughs) And uh, I noticed that there was a vial, like a a blood draw vial of blood on a little plaque on his shelf. And I asked him what that was. And he said, that's a vial of his own blood. If he ever forgets what it means to be a Marine, he's going to drink that. It's about the most metal thing I've ever heard. I'm like, I've got to work for you. Please hire me. And he still cantankerous. I have, I have met that chief. Uh, I never worked for him. He was uh, he was long retired by yeah. the time I got into the game. But uh, I was at a, a retirement party for an officer that that you knew from uh, from back when. And and I get this tap on my shoulder and and you know, hey, what's your name? And so I tell him, uh, Do you work there? Just, yes, sir, I do. And he goes, Did you work for me? And it took me about three eighths of a second to be like, Oh, I, okay. oh. I know who you are, sir. Yeah, you're him. And I was like, uh, no, sir. I, I, I didn't come in until 2016. And he goes, Oh no, I was long gone by yeah. then. Yeah. Just imagine John Wayne is your, as yes. your chief. Yes. Yeah. Just imagine that. Yes. John Wayne is, is your chief of police. That is yeah. a perfect image. Yeah. Literally taking shots of alcohol while running a tactical scene, that type of guy. Not, I shouldn't say literally, but you would, you wouldn't be surprised if you looked over and went, oh, okay, yeah, yeah. there's a shot of Jaeger going down. Yeah, right yeah, she's got a flask. All right, well, moving on. Okay, gonna, <laughs> it was a different time. And, and ultimately, at, the, at that agency, how many years were, were you there? And, uh, what, and what assignments did you work? Sure. I started out in 98. Uh, uh, I started out on patrol. I was on patrol for a couple of years. Um, and then I tested for SAU, which is their SWAT team. And I also tested for the NRT, which was the Neighborhood Response Team. Um, and those guys were the problem solvers, the jack of all trades. Uh, one day you're in patrol, the next day you're riding a bicycle, the next day you're working a UC uh, on a buyback, and uh, and then the next day you're at the council chambers talking to people. It's literally a jack of all trades, and I, that just fascinated me, not knowing what to expect the next day. So I tested for those two, and I got hired first time out for those two. So I was a detective. And I was also on SWAT. We had a part-time team at that time. Um, the NRT eventually molded into a, a tactical team because most of the people on that team came from SWAT. And so we ended up being a pseudo full-time team. And uh, we were running and gunning. I mean, every day we were kicking indoors or doing some tactical surveillance or jumping, street jumping some dude. It was I was just loving it. 
it was the greatest time of my life because I was, I was now taking everything that I'd learned as a soldier and on the, on the army SWAT team and everything that I'd learned in, as a civilian police officer. And I was making it, making it happen. I was using all of my tactics and training and skills to, to really affect and catch some bad guys. And I was working with a great group of guys. These guys are still my friends to this day. And, uh, um, we, we were just doing some, some fun stuff and that was really upsetting people that we were having a lot of fun, <laughs> you know? Um, so I did that for a while. I was, uh, I worked at the Academy. I was an, I was a uh, DT and firearms instructor at the Academy. I was on their recruiting team. I was one of the, I was the first group of recruiters to go outside of the state. We actually went to California for a little bit to do some recruiting. Um, uh, we, we turned into like a pseudo, uh, tactical gang unit. And then eventually they changed the name to street crimes. And then we started doing a lot of narcotics and tact in a street level narcotics and, and videos, vice drugs and organized crime. And so we would do, <laughs> this was pretty fun. We would do uh, prostitution in call escorts. We would get a, a, a hotel room, a, one of these classy upscale hotel rooms from like Intel or Motorola, their, their corporate rooms. And we would get the back page of uh, the new times or, or whatever. And we would, call a dozen escorts at like 30 minute intervals, <laughs> just <laughs> factory one after another, just bring all these prostitutes up and, and hook them. And then we'd go hook up their drivers because uh, there was, there was actually licenses that they had to have in the city to do that kind of stuff. And then there was, there was one time we were, uh, we were contacted. We, we worked closely with the East Valley gang task force and we were contacted that there was a hit from the Mexican mafia put out on this guy and he was a real pervert. He, uh, he liked to go to strip clubs and get young, young men liquored up and then take them home and, and do un, unspeakable things to them. And, and the only way we could find him was at these strip clubs. And so I got paid for a few weeks, four, four days a week, to spend 10 hours a day in strip clubs, just going to all the strip clubs in the valley looking for this guy. Um, that was an interesting conversation with my wife to have that that was what my, I was going to be doing for the next month. Honey, I got a lot of overtime. This yeah. Week. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the, the city handed me a wad of cash that I had to spend to blend in, you know, looking for this guy. Um, cause we wanted him to turn state's evidence. He was an accountant for the mafia and stuff like that. Um, but that was really, that was, I'm, I'm sitting there in a strip club, you know, as a good Mormon boy going, I'm getting paid to be here. Am I, is this real? Is this actually happening? You know? And so that was interesting. Um, and then I ended up going back to patrol, um, got crossways with a supervisor and, uh, decided it was time for me to find uh, bigger and better things to do. And so that's how I ended up working as a, a military contractor for the state department in Afghanistan. Um, and, uh, what, um, was it an immediate, thought of, all right, I'm out. I'm not staying here anymore. Or was it a, uh, uh, a much more, I don't, I don't want to say emotional, but I, I, I feel as though if I'd gotten crossways with a supervisor and I was looking at leaving, there there would still be a part of me that was like, uh, this is the hardest decision of my life. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. It was, it was a devastating. So yeah, I was 100%. I, I, I bled blue. Okay. I bled city blue. And, uh, uh, it, it was the hardest decision I had to make. And it wasn't a spontaneous thing too. This was a slow burn. This was the frog in the, in the boiling water thing. 
And I had, I finally came to a point where I realized what they were actually trying to do. And that was ruin me. Um, they were doing some very, very shady things. And I'm the kind of guy, um, I said, look, you hired me for my bullshit meter. I go, you tell me to go out into the city, turn my bullshit meter on and say, what you're doing is wrong. And then you're asking me to turn it off when I walk in the building. What you're doing is illegal. You can't do what you're doing. You know, this guy, this guy right here, what he did was illegal. This guy right here, this is unmoral. That's unethical. This is an officer safety issue, a legitimate officer safety issue that is not being addressed. You're going to get somebody killed. And they got tired of hearing that from me. And so I eventually, I, they were setting me up for failure. And I saw what was happening. And I said, you know what? I don't need this. Thank you for the million dollars worth of tactical training and experience. I'm going to take what I have someplace else. And so that's when, when the opportunity came to go work for the State Department as a contractor, I jumped at it. And how did that opportunity present itself? I've met a handful of contractors throughout my uh, uh Young, youngish life. I'm getting more and more grays as the days go on, but uh, neither here nor there. <laughs> but um, everybody's kind of got a different story of how they kind of right. came into that that particular I, world. I had started putting feelers out to other agencies, federal agencies, local agencies, that I was I was looking for something else, and they came to me and they said, "Hey, we understand that you you have all this amazing tactical experience in the military. You have all this amazing experience and tactics." you know, from, from being a police officer, we're putting a, a very select group of people together um, that have your level of training experience in both military and law enforcement. And we want you to go with this team to Afghanistan and work in what's called the INL, the International Narcotics and Law Enforcement Program. As a civilian contractor, we want you to engage. Uh, we want you to live and work with the tribal elders and chiefs of police in Afghanistan. We want you to be the the personal mentor and advisor to these leaders to help them see that we're not there as, as um, crusaders, right? We're there to help them free themselves. And so I would, um, and that, that's, they reached out to me and they said, this is the opportunity. We're, we're going to pay you buckets of money and you get to shoot the, the Taliban and you don't have to shave and, or salute or, you know, shine your boots. Shine your, I was going to say, you don't have to wear shiny boots. <laughs> <laughs> we just expect you to be a, because a, a, we're going to leave you alone. We're going to give you tens of thousands of dollars and unaccountable un, uh, cash to, to manage what you're doing. We're going to give you a team and some interpreters. You're going to work along with the mil some special, special guys in the military and other types of contractors. And uh, we're going to turn you loose. So we expect nothing but absolute professionalism from you. Is that something you can do? And I'm like, absolutely, let's do this. You know, and so we would poppy field eradications and bodyguard work and, you know, human smuggling and weapons interdiction. And um, I worked at the National Police Academy for a while in Herat, Afghanistan, training Afghan soldiers how to be cops. And that was, that was the emotional equivalent of herding cats. Sure. You know, I've seen the PT videos, so that doesn't even begin <laughs> the level of, I mean, if you can't do a jumping jack, <laughs> you shouldn't be a cop. Right. Um, and it, well, Afghanistan is a culture that's older than the Bible and it's all tribal. There's no national pride because Afghanistan didn't become a, an actual country until the British, you know, um, after world war two, and they broke that stuff up from India and Pakistan. And so there's no national pride. It's all tribal, and each tribe has its own language. They speak Dari, Pashtun, and Chajik. And so I would have 
these different tribesmen in my class, and I would have to separate them by tribes. So I had three rows, basically, and a language, an interpreter for each one of them. And so something as simple as saying, good morning, my name is Mr. Jason, I would have to stop and let my diary interpreter say that. And then my Chajik, and then my Pashtun oh, interpreter. Oh, my Lord. So how do you explain ethics, you know, to and then have to stop mid-sentence and allow three different languages and then have those questions come back in those three different languages then translated into to English sure, and then try to teach them Western styles thinking, law enforcement thinking. It was, it was madness. It was absolute madness. And then the vetting process wasn't very robust. And so we would find people that were Taliban and Al Qaeda ties in the classroom. And we're, I'm handing these guys a Kalashnikov, right. you know, and teaching them how to use it. And they're looking at me and as, so it, it, I, I, I can't do this. I can't be a part of this. And so I, I went out and found that job where I, where I would go out with the military and we would live, you know, with the village elders and do that kind of stuff. And it's just a fascinating, fascinating experience. And uh, in, in how long did you spend in Afghanistan? I was, I was in country for 13 months. 13 months. Yeah. And in those 13 months were there, I, I remember a buddy of mine, his dad worked for uh, DynCorp yep. back before it, I don't know if it got amalgamated into another yep. group or whatever. Well, DynCorp had the Afghan contract and Blackwater had the Iraq contract. Okay, so okay, that, I got that, you. That helps, that helps you. That helps divvy it up there. Yeah. And, and when he was with DynCorp, he had stories all the time of these guys that would get in with, they were trained, I don't know if they were training A&A or A&P, but mm -hmm. um, these guys would basically, as you said, they get handed a Kalashnikov and some body armor uh, and, and a handful of magazines. And then it was like, <laughs> hey, where'd he go? Yeah. We're not sure. He yeah, hasn't left we the base yet. We would platoons yeah. of heavily armed people. You know, well, where's, it would come out for formation and there's nobody there. And what you look at, you talked about poppy field eradication and, and heroin is the GDP for the country of, of yes. Afghanistan. Yes. Um, what were the reactions like from, because I feel like the farmers who are farming poppy are, are just, they're farmers farming poppy. Is it, would it be like if we walked, you know, into into western say buckeye where the cotton fields and the corn fields are and just lit those on fire yes okay well it's both there's industrial which is which is supported by the afghan government like karzai the first president he wasn't the best guy he just showed up with the biggest militia he's a drug dealer and his family are drug dealers and the poppy fields that we would take out were his competitors so there's industrial poppy fields which were rivaled the cornfields of Kansas. You can actually see them from space. Holy shit. From satellite. It's the only green patch, you know? So, and those were hectares, hundreds of hectares of, of poppy fields, as far as the eye can see. Um, and they would grow hash there too. So you're talking marijuana trees that are six feet high that they would harvest hash out of. And, uh, but then there was farmers too that, that had a, an acre you know, because that's what they did for a hundred years is grow poppy, uh, you know, because they traded with the Chinese and then the British and the Russians and that's how they made their money. And so it really just the, the, the poppy fields that we would take out would be the competitors to the bigger poppy field guys. Um, we were supporting, it's, it's like the Crips and the Bloods, but we supported the Crips, you know, and we propped up the Crips and we took out the Bloods. It's basically what's happening. And they, they were laughing at us. They are, they, they had no respect for us and they still don't because they know where that poppy field, where it's going to go. 
Mm-hmm. It's coming to America. We're paying for it. And then they're going to take that money and, and use it to fly planes into buildings. Right. So, you know, and then we would show up. The, the, we are so arrogant in our thinking that we think that we show up and everybody's going to be American. And everybody's going to agree that the American style of government and, and life is what they should do. And who are we to walk into this country and just demand that they are democratic in their thinking and, and that even though the, for the last thousand years their culture has been masculine and that women, you know, um, were treated a certain way, and then we show up with a female army commander and expect them to listen to her you know, and then, and then show respect to us. And, and it's a joke. It's it just an doesn't work joke. that way. It doesn't work that way. You know, it doesn't work that way at all. We don't understand or respect other people's cultures. You know, it, it would be no different than if the Afghans came here and said, you have to read the Quran and you have to put your women in burqas, you know, and you, and, and every you have Thursday, to abide by Sharia law. And every Thursday is man is boy love Thursday. And, and that's what you are going to do. What would we do? no, Across the Delaware again, <laughs> exactly. You know, <laughs> you know I'd, I'd take pot shots at you too if that's what if that's what it was. Yeah. So when I went and started working with the with the village elders and stuff, I recognized this and I said, "Look, I'm not here to tell you to be American. I'm not demanding. I'm here to work with you in this village to help make you safe." And I was very successful by recognizing their culture and appreciating their culture, and you know, and uh, and giving respect to the elders. And, and not talking to the females because that was what a stranger was not allowed to do. Sure. That would get her killed. But, you know, we walk down the street and we say hi to women all the time. We, you know, we don't, we think it's okay for mom to go to the grocery store without a male escort. That doesn't happen over there. And so saying something about that that's wrong is an insult. You know, it's going to take generations and generations for them to start thinking Western in their thinking. And that starts with education. And, uh, and, and that's one of the reasons why I was a big supporter while I was over there of, of opening up the educational process to children again. And, and the ones, the, the village elders that recognize that as the future, we were very successful at starting schools, for, again, for girls, because it was illegal to allow girls over the age of six or seven to be educated. And uh, we started opening up schools for girls, and then the Taliban would come in and threaten to cut the arms off of any girl that... Right. That came to that school and or uh, take a take a uh, drill, a power drill to the forehead of any mother that allowed their children to go to school, and so we had had a lot of interv- a lot of interdiction to stop that kind of thing from happening. And um, but it was all based on what the village elder allowed to happen. If he was okay with it, then it was okay. If he wasn't okay with it, I wasn't going to push the issue um, because it's their country, it's their way of life, and I'm trying to ingratiate myself into their culture. I'm not trying to tell them. You know, you have to do it Mr. Jason's way or I'm out of here. Because that, that would just end up shooting me. <laughs> right. And how, how does, I mean, a, a unique perspective somewhat of you grew up with with religion. Uh, you grew up within a, the LDS community. You had your time uh, on on the mission. How do you sort of juxtapose your time as an LDS missionary mm-hmm. and, and growing up uh, uh, within the greater banner of the Christian faith and uh, against now you're in Afghanistan with this, as you said, it's, it's not, it would be inherently disrespectful of me to say that 
there backwards because it's just that's just their culture as you've, right. as you've highlighted right and it's right. not it's not for me to determine what their culture they think we're be. backwards absolutely they consider us to, to be barbarians and backwards and uncultured and uneducated and unreligious and right an affront to islam and so the same thing that we think of them they think of us you know so it's it's perspective but i you know i understand what you're saying yeah was it was it challenging for you at any point in time to sit there and, and go, this doesn't even align with the faith that I was raised with? Or were you able to pretty much sort of, well, like having I, been a police officer, were you sure. able to sort of mute my, that? My perspective is Christ didn't say this is just for the white people. Fair <laughs> enough, yeah. <laughs> he, he didn't, right? He said, everybody on earth is my child, and I'm doing this for everybody. And what I'm asking you to do is treat everybody the same. Love everybody equally. Have mercy for everybody equally. You know, um, if you need to be, if you need to tip over the, the 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 tables in the temple and kick out the money changers, then so be it. But you should be willing to die for those people the next day. Right. Same way I look at being a cop. You know, I, I don't I don't care who you pray to. I don't care what your skin color is. I don't care what language you speak. You're a human being. I'm gonna treat you with dignity and respect as long as that's how you treat me. If you're asking for an ass kicking, you're going to get one. Right. Right. Because I'm not going to put up with that. I've got a, I've got a bigger responsibility to stop you from hurting other people than to worry about your feelings. Um, and so that's how I looked at it. These are God's children too. And I'm going to serve them. I'm going to help them. I'm going to be a Christian and I'm going to show them what true Christianity is, which is true, which is brotherly love, which is grace, which is mercy. You know, I'm not going to impose my will on anybody. Christ didn't impose his will on anybody. And he's asked me to do the same. So that's how I looked at it. And I was, I lived. You know? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, here, here you are now in, in, I, I in the, the East Valley of I Phoenix, can, Arizona in, in my front room. I consider that a win, you know? Hey, hey walked away vertical on that one, right? Yeah. Chalked it up as a win. Yeah. You, you'd, you'd mentioned that, you know, it, with education and getting the girls educated again, um, and to sort of highlight that, as some people may not know, and, and I was sort of unaware up until recently, is that Afghanistan has not always looked the way that it looks. You, no. go, you go back into the 50s, uh, yeah, yeah. and it was a it was like a, a Western metropolis, right? It was yes. the, the, the women were not in burqas. There were, you know, colorful clothes, the kites that were flying, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, up until... Uh, mini skirts and rock and roll. Mini, skirt, mini skirts, rock and roll, up until yeah. the... Uh, the regime change. There was a book um, uh, written in the fifties. There was this like overlanding expedition. So I don't know if it was sponsored by David Attenborough, but at any rate, the British went ahead and did it. Cause why the hell not in a, and two Land Rovers, no less driving from London to Singapore. Mm-hmm. And I just read the follow on book to that written in 2019 called the last overland where they recovered one of those Land Rovers, fixed it up and drove it from Singapore back the other direction. <laughs> but he had highlighted that you couldn't take the same route, Afghanistan mm-hmm. being the biggest hurdle. Um, uh, and, and so when you said that part about, you know, wanting to, to sort of revamp the education, it, it reminded me of, of Alex Bescovy's book. But what are your thoughts now, having served there for 13 months and worked that hard with, with your counterparts in, in either the U.S. military, foreign, uh, foreign agencies or foreign militaries, um, the, the Afghans who generally wanted, maybe they did want to, to bring about some level of change. Yeah. Oh yeah. There were, there were plenty. There were some very educated, well-educated people that were there, doctors and lawyers and things like that. Um, multiple languages spoken, world travelers, their passport was thicker than mine. Sure. Um, but they loved their country and that's where their family was. And so they would come home and they would try to make things better. And these, these ended up being our, our, our interpreters. 
most, most of them became our interpreters and our, and our advisors. And, um, these people wanted, they, they had been around the world. They had seen that it's okay to be Muslim and be modern at the same time. And they knew that this was a very extreme, um, display of the, the Muslim religion. And it was outside of the norm of the other billion Muslims in the world that were living in Dubai you know, you go from Kabul to Dubai, it's the oh, same yeah. God they're praying to. That's a mind screw right there, you know, because that's, that's Vegas on steroids. And, and you see, you see uh, Westerners walking around in bikinis and you, you know, and two hours before you're in the Kabul airport and all you see is the nose and ankles of a woman. Right. And so they knew that there was a bigger, bigger world out there and that, that what was happening to them through the Taliban and ISIS and Al Qaeda was was out of ignorance, and they wanted to to make Afghanistan a better place. There's some tremendous opportunities that Afghan has because of the resources that are there, but nobody is going to support the infrastructure because of the cost, both financially and to human lives that it will take to put a railroad in or a power station because sure. you they don't even have roads. And so you literally have to start like pioneers that cross the plains to build a country again. And nobody's going to do that. Those mountains are full of minerals, full of them, you know, and they've, there's raging rivers and there's actual forests and, and, and just a lot of potential that Afghanistan has. But because they have been so, they've been beaten down, you know, uh, they have been at war since the turn of the century with one superpower or another. Even Alexander the Great tried to conquer Afghanistan. Um, that didn't turn out well for anybody. Right. And if you want, if it's a graveyard of, of empires right. is what they call it for good reason, because those people are fighters. I mean, they will arm their six-year-old children. Um, and I've seen it. It's not pretty to see a, a, a nine-year-old girl, you know, with a, an SKS, or a, a suicide vest. And um, I don't even know how we got to this topic. I'm getting off, off topic here. But it, yeah, to, to, to overlay that with Christian values is, is not going to work. Afghan has to save itself first. They have to have a, a morality, a national morality. And they don't even have that yet. And they don't have, there's one paved road and it makes a circle in the middle of Afghanistan. It's called the Ring Road. And that's actually paid for by Iran so they can get the poppies out of Afghanistan okay. a lot easier. Everything else is dirt. It's all dirt. And, uh, and so you, you can't even begin a nation building because they've, you have to start literally with, you know, a road. Right. And a road leads to what? You know, if you're going to build a dam, you need a power station, you need a railroad, you need... You need cement, you need iron, you need all that stuff. And none of that stuff is produced in Afghanistan. It all has to come from someplace else. It's a landlocked country too. So that all has to come from Pakistan or Iran, mm -hmm. you know, or come down through Turkmenistan and Tajikistan, which is a whole nother, whole nother um, geopolitical problem sure. up there. Sure. Um, so there's, they're, they're facing a lot of problems and what we did to them um, coming up on the second anniversary of the, the pullout right. um, is, a, is an absolute national tragedy with all the blood that those Afghans shed trying to make that place better, that we just would, would drop them like a hot rock. Um, 
my, I, I no longer have contact with my interpreters and their families are gone. And, um, it's a, just, a, it's a, it just breaks my heart because their children, I knew their children personally. Um, I, I arranged for, for one of them, their wives to, to get pre, pre, um, prenatal medications. Okay. I had them shipped from overseas. My wife packaged up prenatal medications because they didn't have vitamins and supplements for pregnant women. And so my wife and I got this big package together of all these prenatal medications and medicines and supplements and so that she could have a healthy baby. Her baby was healthy because I was able to do that. The baby's gone. The baby's gone. Don't know. It, it's either dead or sold into slavery, you know? The, the child would be a preteen now. Mm-hmm. And that's when they start raping them is when they're that age, these, these, these animals. And we just left them there and we left hundreds of American citizens there. I, if I would had been in country when that happened, I would be stuck in Afghanistan still because I wasn't in Kabul. I was in Herat, which is up against the Iranian border. That's where I was. So I'd have to get a thousand miles through enemy territory and get to Kabul in three days. That wasn't going to happen. I would have had to have found another way out, either through Iran or through Turkmenistan, or smuggle my way across the country into Pakistan. And then those guys didn't like us after what we did to, to Bin Laden in their right. own country. So there were hundreds of people like me that just were left in Afghanistan. It's a, it's a tragedy. I am ashamed to be an American after seeing what we did. It was... Um, it was heartbreaking. I, I don't even have the words. When I'm watching live on television, these men clinging to those C-17s, falling a hundred, you know, three hundred feet from the from the sky because they can't hang on any longer and bouncing off that runway because that was a better option than the what the Taliban was going to do. Right. Right. That was a better option than what, and we did that. We did that. And there's, I would argue that there's nobody in this country. I wouldn't say nobody. There are very, very few people in this country who could even begin to understand what that's like. The only thing I can liken it to is somebody up at the top of the World Trade Center deciding, you know what, fuck it, I'm just going to jump. Yeah, because that's better than what's happening inside. Right. Yeah, that's the only that's the only only other way. And we did that too, you know. Um, we weren't responsible for bringing the towers down, but our politics brought us to that point that we we thought that we could just interfere in everybody else's problems instead of focusing on ourselves. You know, and then we just lost sight of what's important, and somebody else decided to to remind us that <laughs> we're not invincible. Right, right, and uh, yeah, I mean, I was shit. I was uh, ten, uh, just shy of my eleventh. Well, two months shy of my eleventh birthday when uh, when nine eleven happened, and it uh, uh, still. I just I said that the other day to one of our commanders, and he just looked at me. It was like, good God. And I'm like, so I'm sorry, sir. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way. I had just made the SWAT team. <laughs> you for, had just for made the SWAT agency. team for that agency. And uh, it took my wife three days to convince me not to reenlist. She said, the fight's coming here. and You're on the SWAT team. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're needed here now. And so I finally listened to her because I was going to reenlist. I was going to go fight. I said, I'm not putting up with this. You know, and I would have been one of the first boots on the ground in Afghanistan. Um. But I, I stuck it out here and was able to do what I did here instead. Right, right. Well, and, and, and it leads you back. You spent 13 months in Afghanistan, mm-hmm. and then you came home. 
yep. to the to the states. What was that like? Oh my gosh. So I rode around in Afghanistan. This is a funny story. It's funny now. It wasn't funny when it happened. Um, I rode around in Afghanistan in an F-350 Supercrew uh, diesel pusher, four-wheel drive with thousands of pounds of armor and a windshield about six inches thick. Um, and we, just out of pure survival, couldn't follow traffic laws. So we were left of center. We are doing 90 miles an hour through the middle of Herat. We were ramming vehicles. Because if we stopped, they would throw grenades at us and, and stuff like that. And so I treated that thing like, like an offensive weapon. Um, and you had to, we ran around in, in at least two, uh, two vehicle convoys. Sometimes we would have the military with us, but they couldn't keep up with us. So we'd have to drive their speed limit, which they could only do like 45 miles an hour. <laughs> not doing you any good, right? Not doing us <laughs> any good. And they're like, well, we got, we got air support. So we're fine. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, if, 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 when they would shoot at us, they would just plink off of our armor and it would go completely through because they're using 7.62 at a minimum and then just in and out of those soft-skinned Humvees right. that they're riding. And I'm like, okay, let's keep doing 45. That makes sense. But um, so I'm, I'm used to this and I'm used to everything being a threat. Um, a pothole is a threat. Um, a vehicle that's not, that's acting squirrely is a threat. Somebody on a cell phone on the corner watching me go by is a threat. Everything is a threat, right? So I, I, I leave Harat to come home. I fly back into Kabul, and I'm in Kabul for a couple of days until they can arrange my transportation. So I go from our compound in Kabul to the Karzai airport. While we're traveling in our convoy, we get attacked. And so it's, it was light arms and grenades. It wasn't that. We didn't stick around. We just blew right through the, the, the ambush. Um, and so I get to the airport. I still smell like Afghanistan, right? I don't get a chance to change my clothes. I get on the plane. I, I fly into, from Kabul, um, I fly into Dubai. And then from Dubai, I take a, a direct flight to Atlanta. So it's a 17-hour flight. And then from Atlanta to, to home. And so I'm, it's over 24 hours I'm on a plane. And I get home. I haven't changed my clothes. I still smell like gunpowder and, and Afghanistan because it just stinks there. And, uh, and I spent 13 months in uh, a Ford pickup truck. My wife picks me up from the airport in our Ford pickup truck. <laughs> and you're like, what the hell? <laughs> so, well, I'm walking through the airport and everybody's a threat, right? Right. There's people running, there's screaming, there's, there's military aged men that are looking at me with a suitcase. I, everything. I'm just, I'm, I'm like a coiled spring because I did not get that chance to decompress, right? We walk out and, and she, she's driving. So I'm, I get in the passenger seat, which is where I sat as a contractor. I was a TC. I was a, a commander. And my responsibility was uh, noon to three. Sorry. Oh, you're good. You're all right. Um, you know, you each take area of responsibility. So mine was from the nose to the three o'clock position. So you adjust your body slightly. And I, I know your, your viewers can't see this, but I'm moving in my chair so that I can scan the, the, the noon to three position. That's my threat area. So I'm sitting like this, and I realize I don't have a weapon. And I start to freak out. I start to panic. And my wife's like, what are you, why are you sitting like that? And I was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry. Right? And then she starts driving the speed limit, and she stops at a stoplight, and she lets these vehicles get so close. You know, and there's a guy with a cell phone right over there. You know? And I am freaking out because I didn't get a chance to, to, to decompress. I went from the battlefield right to the house. 
And it took me a couple of days before I could even breathe. Mm-hmm. You know, my jaw was sore from clenching my teeth and, and I would hear a noise and I would go to guns and, 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 uh, that was, that was a rough time for me. That was a rough period. And, and, uh, I got a little, a little cross with the wife because she wasn't being sound, turning a light on in the middle of the night. What the hell's wrong with you? you know? Light discipline, light discipline, <laughs> light discipline. you know, <laughs> you honk the horn, <laughs> you know, there's a dog barking set up, you know, somebody's coming. Right. Um, so I, I sympathize with these, these guys that are, that are coming home because we don't, we don't give them an opportunity to decompress. We don't give them an opportunity to transition back because they are literally stepping off the, the plane. Like these reservist guys, they, you know, it might be like a 19 year old kid that was the night assistant manager at the Walmart. You know, the next day he's in Afghanistan walking point. And he does that for a year or whatever. And then he comes home and, and people expect him to put the paper hat back on and, and the apron and start, you know, stocking shelves again. And mm-hmm. this kid needs help. This kid needs a chance to decompress, you know. Okay, that's why he's an alcoholic maybe now. And that's, you know, that's why he's addicted to porn. And, and he just wants to sit there and play video games because he hasn't had a chance to to ease back into society yet. And we're doing we're doing these guys a real disservice by not taking care of them. And, um, but one thing that I did notice having experienced both combat and law enforcement is that your body, your mind doesn't understand the difference. It doesn't, you're, you don't, you're not looking at a map going, well, I'm in Phoenix. So being shot at doesn't matter as much, you know, all your body and all your mind understands is input and being shot at in Phoenix is the exact same sensation as being shot in Afghanistan, a dead body in Phoenix is the exact same sensation as a dead body in Afghanistan. Um, a dead partner, same emotions. So we have these kids, these nine assistant managers that do a year in Afghanistan and come back and rightly so deserve our help and our praise. We've got cops that have been in combat for 20 years, for four, at least 40 hours a week, that have been absorbing this and have no way to decompress, no outlet no sympathy, no understanding, no, no recognition of what PTSD can do to you, you know? And then we just tell these guys, Hey, suck it up. We got, we got calls waiting, you know, and you you got, you've got the sads, don't you? Maybe we should take your gun from you because Mm -hmm. we can't trust you anymore. Well, fuck you. You know, I just, I just watched my partner burn to death in his patrol car. Right. I'm having an issue with this. Well, we've got these barking dog calls that are stacking up. So you need to go shag some calls. Um, so I, I had a real problem with transitioning and, and then picking up with Phoenix, having the baggage from the military, the baggage from being a contractor. And I passed all the psych exams, you know, it's, it's not like I was broken. I just had a lot of issues that I had no outlet for. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that caused a lot of, a lot of problems with me. And, and, and that transition in back into law enforcement, what was the, what what led to that decision? Was it uh, you got back and you went, well, shit, I might as well go back to doing what I know? <laughs> um, I was actually having the time of my life in Afghanistan, and uh, my wife said, well, this is why you got out of the Army, because you were always leaving. You are always doing something. And I said, well, crap. If mom doesn't, you know, mom doesn't support this anymore, it's it's time to time to change. So that's what got me out of Afghanistan is, is I, you know, her re- her request for me to be a husband and a father again. Um, I mean, I saw my family while I was over there. We were, um, 
one of the benefits was that they halfway through, they would fly me anywhere in the world. And so I flew my family to England and I flew there and we met in England and we spent a couple of weeks just tromping over Europe. Um, but, um, it was still, that's months and months at a time when you're not around your family. And right. I've got a teenage son now who needs a dad and a preteen daughter who needs a father. And, you know, my wife is like, look, you need to come home. I, I'm, I'm not doing this by myself, you know? So I, again, I just start reaching out to recruiters uh, over Zoom. <laughs> and uh, they had, and Phoenix had a specific recruiter for laterals. And I hadn't, because I hadn't been out of the system for three years, so all my certs were valid. Yep. Yeah. And so I reached out to her and uh, I said, hey, I'd like to be a, a Phoenix cop. It's a funny story. I was actually 13 seconds into a Zoom call with her. And there's the time difference. There's 12 and a half hours time difference. And you're asking yourself, what's the extra half an hour for? Why not 13 or 11 or 12, right? So the big joke is Afghanistan is so poor they couldn't afford the extra 30 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's 12 and a half, for whatever reason, it's 12 and a half hours time zone difference. And so it's late at night for me, super early in the morning for her, but sure. we had to find a time. not like she's going to talk to me at three o'clock in the morning. Right. Right. So about 13 seconds into our interview, we get a rocket attack. And so the whole place shakes and there's a big boom and she goes, what was that? And I went, I got to go slam the, slam the thing shut. <laughs> she's for like two days. Hadn't heard from me or Open your laptop back up. Hey, so we hey, can start so the anyway, zoom. Out. Like, no, 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 no. We need to talk about what just happened here. <laughs> It's fine. We're fine. I'm fine. It was just a rocket attack. Come on. It's just Tuesday. I don't know what else to tell you. <laughs> yeah, literally, it's it's the Tuesday. So, you know, it's the middle of Ramadan, so they're going to shell us every night. That's right. just how it was, just what, the way it was. And so. And what uh, what year did you start back with uh, with Phoenix? Uh, 2008. 2008. Started, yeah. And you went until 2016. We established that, I think. Yeah, right? well, I got wounded in 2013. Okay. Um, they d- and they didn't medically retire me until... 2017. Okay. Yeah. And so the, we'll, we'll get into the injury here in, in, a, in a minute. What were your roles within Phoenix PD up until the point you got injured? Mostly patrol. Okay. And I worked in South Phoenix my entire time. And um, I told the recruiters, I said, if I can't work in South Phoenix, don't even write my name down. I'm having the time of my life here in Afghanistan making a ton of money. A ton of money. <laughs> right. And I don't have to shave. Tax free. <laughs> right. I'm, I am literally in the fabled catbird seat right here. Um, so I want to work South Phoenix because I knew the reputation of the officers in South Phoenix. They were different. The crime the, the, and the, the, the volume of crime and the types of crime were different. Um, as a narcotics and gang detective, I'd worked in South Phoenix with the other agencies. And that's where I wanted to be. That's the, one of the last places in the state where you can actually be a cop. Actual do cop stuff, right? And so I told him. South Phoenix. And they looked at me like, you want to work in South Phoenix? And I go, absolutely. So I did my FTO, my modified FTO process. I didn't have to go through the whole process. I sure. just had to, to prove to them I still knew how to put handcuffs on people. And, right. And actually to write a F- police report. Right, right. right. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm actually a cop, you know. And, and uh, two of my FTOs were my students when I taught DT at the academy. <laughs> How did that make you feel? I got, a, I got a five. I got a five on my rating for DT when I worked with them. They're like, look, you taught us how to fight. You're good, you know. And, and you know, uh, fortunately, unfortunately, there was a lot of times to, to demonstrate my apprehension skills. Sure. It's, it is a target-rich environment. It was. They've done a real good job about cleaning it up. 
um, bringing in some some neighborhoods and stuff. But at the time, it was a target-rich environment, and I loved it. It was awesome. Just a, every day was a gunfight or a car chase or a helicopter ride or a dog bite or, you know, every day. You'd, you'd have to put the blinders on on your way home just so you could get out of there. Just so you can, yeah, yeah. yeah. Nope, nope, don't see it, don't see it. Yeah. And then uh, uh, you 2013 comes around and, and you get injured. Tell me about that. Yeah, that was a good, that was a good story. Um, so it's the end of my shift. It's midnight. Um, it's about a hundred degrees outside. It's one of those classic Arizona nights. And I just finished the 10 hour shift and I was pulling into the precinct. Um, just about ready to push that magic 10, eight button on the, on the NDC to tell everybody out there in the cop land that I was done. And right before I pushed that, that magic 10, eight button, um, or 10, seven button, sorry. Um, radio kicks in that, uh, Patrol's chasing a guy just down the street. And uh, so I have a choice. I can push that end of shift button and go home, or I can turn my patrol car around and get involved in this chase. Well, this is an easy choice for me. This is what I do. Right. Right? That's not even a choice. They're chasing a bad guy. I could get into a, a pursuit and not do much paperwork. This is going to be awesome, right? And get some OT at the oh, end. Yeah. Hell I yeah. two hours of OT, <laughs> baby. Someone's got to keep mama in her shoes, Right. So I, uh, I turn my patrol car around and I get involved in this chase. Well, it turns into a foot chase. And as I'm chasing this guy through the, the dark alleys of Phoenix, um, I feel this tremendous pain in the back of my leg where my, uh, my leg meets my butt right there in the hip. Okay. Right? And I say to myself, oh, you know what? If I'm going to wake up in the morning with a pulled hamstring muscle, this knucklehead is going to have my handcuffs on him when he goes to jail. He's going to know that Mr. Jason was the guy that caught him. So that made me want to run after him even harder. And the harder I ran, the more it hurt. And the more it hurt, the more I wanted to catch this guy, right? So it got to the point where I'm basically just Gumby in my leg behind me, just trying to keep him in sight. Um, because we were, at the time, like 500 officers below minimum. And I was riding solo. Um, and so, you know, I'm putting out where he's going, and we're trying to get a perimeter set up and everything. It's just we don't have the officers, Right. So I'm chasing him, and we find the air unit finally shows up, and you can hear the other squads coming. They're running code three, and then so he realizes he's not going to get away. So he turns on me in this alley in a boxer stance, and I'm moving just as fast as I can. And so I'm there's blood's already been spent. Spent. I'm, I want this guy, and so I hit him like an open field linebacker tackle. We go down on the ground, and we just start beating the mustard out of each other. He tries these MMA moves on me. It's, this is what I do for fun, I, you know, I jujitsu and cage fight and all that stuff. And, uh, and, and so I finally get my handcuffs on him and I roll him over in the dirt and I stand up over the top of him like Randy Macho Man Savage. Right? <laughs> Where are you going, Billy? You know, <laughs> I'll tell you, you're going nowhere. And, uh, and or that's in when, his case to Fourth Avenue. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's going right back, yeah. And uh, that's when it felt like I had just been shot in this amazing pain when shooting up my spine and down both my legs and it hurt so bad that it sucked the air out of my lungs and I couldn't make a conscious thought. I couldn't figure out what was happening. And so I finally got my thought process back and I said, well, if I, if they're shooting at me, I need to get down. I need to find cover, but I couldn't move. I couldn't, nothing was working and it wasn't making any sense. I couldn't process what was happening. And so my next, I started looking to make sure there was no holes in me, no holes in me. And so I go, did, did I just tase myself? You know, so I looked down and my taser's still in, intact on my, on my duty belt nothing's making sense. And just this pain, it just hurts so bad. There's tears in my eyes. I'm catching my breath. Uh, so the other units figure out where we are and they get there and they get the guy and, and Sarge walks up and he sees me and he goes, Mao, are you okay? 
<laughs> and I'm like, oh, <laughs> I'm okay, Sarge, but it's the allergy season right now. <laughs> you know? And so, um, like an idiot, I drive myself to the hospital. Um, hindsight, I probably should have just fallen over in the fetal position. But one, I'm thinking, you know what, I'm a big, I'm a big tough guy. I'm going to walk this off, right? Just some aspirin, some rest. I just need a stretch. And two, I'm not getting in that ambulance with those firemen. It's not going to happen. Those guys are weird, right? And I'm, I'm not getting locked in that ambulance because I know they're going to cut my uniform off. Right. I paid for half of this gear, right? I don't want to be rolled into the ER with my, my junk hanging out and some fire guy making with the big handlebar mustache making some sort of inappropriate joke. Right. I just wasn't in the mood for it. So I drove myself to the hospital. Long story short, um, you know that that light bar that's in the ER where they put the, the MRI and the, and the film on, you turn yep. it on, you can see it. So they eventually do an MRI of my hips and my legs and the doctor walks in and he puts this film up and there's my, my, uh, my, um, my, my hips and my legs. And right in the middle of my thighs are these big white splotches. And, uh, and that was um, what that ended up being was uh, fluid that was filling up in a vacuum. Uh, I didn't know what it was. He explained, doctor explained to me later. And I went, doc, what is that? Cause I'd been in enough ERs and broken enough bones and seen enough x-rays to know that wasn't right, but I couldn't figure out what it was. And he got real serious and he goes, I can't explain what I'm looking at right here. Medically, there's no medical in all my experiences. I don't know how to explain what I'm seeing here, but what you have done is you have completely detached both of your hamstring muscles from your pelvis bone. Oh, damn. And he goes, I don't even know how you walked in here. He said, either you have an extremely high tolerance for pain or you're too dumb to know it hurts. Either way, <laughs> you, know, you need to lie down. And so I did. And I couldn't get back up. I had crippled myself. I'd lost the ability to walk. Um, and that's when my whole world came apart. Um, my wife finds out how, married 23 years, two kids, finds out how badly I'm hurt. She divorces me. Drops me like a bad habit. And... To, to kind of compress everything. Um, I ended up homeless, unemployable, divorced, crippled, and financially ruined all at the same time. And I couldn't even get up to stop what was happening to me from happening. And so I was basically stuck in a crockpot of my own emotional filth because I didn't, I lost my coping mechanisms. Everything that was keeping the monsters in my mind at bay, I couldn't do anymore. And so I would lay there for days and days just weeping openly, just burning um, from the pain and from the anguish of having no support, no nothing. Everything and everybody that I had counted on that had promised me that they would be there for me abandoned me, and I was left on the battlefield to die. Um, and that lasted for a very long time. And uh, when you have, I don't mean to bogart the time here, when you have nothing left, when everything has been taken away from you, your identity, um, your ability to move, your support system, your finances, uh, the thought that you may never walk again, all of that. It's, and, and, and then you add emotional, physical, and psychological pain on top of that. You are, you are literally in the refining fire. You are burned to the carbon. And when you get to that point, you're left with two choices. It's victory or death right? And I am a problem solver. This is all I've ever done. 
is solve problems. That's what we do. That's our number one job as cops is to solve people's problems. Right. Right. So if, you know, and if you call for paratroopers, there's nobody else coming. I have to solve that problem. If you call for the SWAT team, there's nobody else coming. I have to solve that problem, you know. And this was a gigantic problem. I went from being an apex predator. I hunt armed men. I went from that to an invalid with no support and no prospects and no future. And, and basically uh, the blink of an eye. And so it's victory or death at this point. And I'm not too ashamed to say that that, that victory made a very powerful argument. And, and my Glock 2021 20, is sitting in that bag right there as I'm laying there, right? And the only reason I didn't put that bullet and suck start that pistol is because I knew my mom would be the one that found me. And I couldn't do that to her. Having seen that as a cop too many times, what that scene would look like and the aftermath, the emotional trauma to my children, my mom, what that would do to the people that I, even though they're not there, I still love them, right? And I said, I can't do that to her. And so I said, well, I guess it's victory then. And that meant that I would have to be okay with whatever victory meant. If victory, if victory meant that I was never going to walk again, I had to be okay with that. And it took a long time to come to that realization. And it caused me to rediscover my faith um, in a higher power, in my faith in Jesus Christ. And I don't push my religion on anybody else. Everybody's free to walk their own path. This is what I did. This is what happened for me. And I had to reconnect um, with where my grounding principles were, who I was as at my core, because that's all that was left, was who I was at my core. And who I was at my core was a man, a Christian man. And it was... I had to stop saying that I was a Christian man and I had to start acting like a Christian man. And so my first act of rebellion against, my first act of sedition and rebellion against the darkness was to write on a little piece of paper, goals for the day, wake up, survive, go to bed. And I stuck that to the bookcase because I could look up, I could look right and I could look left and that was it. And that's my mantra, is that I will wake up, I will do whatever I have to do to make it until lunch. That's how I marked my time and survive that day and then go to bed. And everything else I gave to God. I would be laying there and the PTSD would bubble up, the dead faces, the smell of burning flesh, you know, all the, 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 the tense, the, the, the tightness, the, the heaviness. And I would say, you know what, Heavenly Father, there's nothing I can do about this. I'm giving this pain to you. I'm trusting you that everything will be okay. I'm going to wake up. I'm going to survive. I'm going to go to bed. Everything else, I'm just, I'm not worried about it anymore. I'm giving it to you. And I'm trusting that everything will be okay. I would start thinking about my divorce. Here's the woman that I loved for 23 years. She's taken everything, my dog, everything. I have nothing, right? There's nothing I can do about it. I can't even get up to try to stop what's happening. Um, I'm giving that pain to you. And I'm going to wake up. I'm going to, I'm going to do whatever I have to do until my, lunch, my meal I'm going to give myself a break. I'm going to eat whenever that happens to be. And then I'm going to go right back into doing whatever I have to do physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually to survive the day. And that's how I lived through that was just living moment to moment, just breathing, just focusing on my breath. And I actually didn't take any pain medications after the surgeries because I knew that if I didn't feel the pain that I would get up and that would make everything just 
worse, right? I couldn't heal if I got up because I was such a problem solver mm-hmm. that I needed that pain to, to anchor me to that bed. And so any little movement, a hiccup, a cough, a twist would just send shooting pains searing through my body because I had major surgeries. I'll show you the, the pictures later. They had to cut from the, from, from the DMZ inside the crotchetal area there and follow the, the crease, the smiley face crease of your butt, how it meets your butt and your leg. They, right. they followed it all the way up there to the outside of my hip, lifted my whole butt muscle up, cut through all the butt muscles, drilled holes in my pelvis, reached down my leg, pulled up the hamstring muscle, had to trim the dead atrophied hamstring off. So when they sewed it back on, my leg wasn't straight. I had to eventually do more damage to straighten my leg out. And then they, um, they take the muscle and they put screws in those holes in my pelvis and they bound it with surgical twine. And then I had to hold completely still as scar tissue formed over that. And that's all that's holding my hamstrings on. That was just some scar tissue and some bailing wire from Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and so if I moved, it would pop off and I would be right back to in square one. So I had to hold completely still. And if I moved at all, just that shooting, because all of that damage and all that healing and stitches and, and all that stuff, I just, I don't know if you've ever had a surgery, but it's not to that extent, it's pretty painful. Um, and they can only do one leg at a time. And so I had one leg done and it takes a year to recover before they can do any physical therapy, but they couldn't do any physical therapy because my other leg was just as bad. And so I went through this first process a whole year, knowing that I was going to have to do it again. And so I did one year then they did the other leg. And then it was a year after that before I could do physical therapy. So it was three years before I'd ever knew if I was ever even going to walk again with nothing but pain and, and helplessness and abandonment. And, and, uh, I was, I was burned right down to nothing. And, uh, and I had to rebuild my life. And so I, I made the, the conscious choice to, to be a victor in this and, uh, rebuilt my life. I learned to walk again. Uh, I was, a, I eventually was medically retired after a five year struggle with the city um, so I got my full medical retirement. I found love again, remarried. Um, I am now, having crossed that bridge, I am healthier, happier, richer, more adjusted, and have a bigger family than I ever did the day before I was wounded. So it's, um, to me, it's a personal testament to the power of grace. What grace will do if you'll allow God into your life and allow him to heal you his way and not, and understand that you're not in control of this, that, uh, that he is in control and you give that control to him and allow him to, to, to redefine who you are through the refining process. I, uh, I occasionally find myself thinking back in my own struggles, which now pale in comparison. I really had to, I'm going to have to check myself now moving forward. We're, in my we're not in competition here, man. <laughs> but you, uh, you're, you're going to be held accountable for what you do. Right. And for how you walk your path. So you, we are not in competition. What happens to you is what you need. What happens to me is what I need. And this is a race against the clock, not against everybody else. And, and it, we have double burdens because as cops, we age like dogs you know, for every year we live, we age seven mm-hmm. because of what we deal with. And so we have all that extra baggage that we have to carry that civilians will never understand. I don't care who you are. You can be the most educated um, um, therapist. 
in the world when it comes to law enforcement. If you have never humped a beat, you are not capable of understanding what we go through. I appreciate what you, your efforts and you're needed, but don't tell me you understand. That's like me saying, I understand childbirth. Right. You know, I'm an OBGYN. I've studied it for years. I deliver babies. I can tell you exactly what a woman goes through. Bull crap. No, you can't because <laughs> you've never squeezed a baby out. You know, it's the same, the same ideas. Um, but we're not in competition. Well, know? no, but you bring up a good point. I, I think that it was, uh, I did it. Anyway, we do it differently now, but when I was going through FTO, you did a week with the gang unit. That was your proactive right. hands-on week. Yep. And that, I, I, when I, I want to attribute it to that gang detective, uh, whom you'll know. We'll, we'll say names later. Um, and it was him that looked at, it was a he that looked at me and said, and I don't think I'd, I'd said this up to that point, but it was a good reminder. He'd said, don't ever tell somebody on this street that you understand. <laughs> yeah. Because when you're up on, on these streets and these people are telling you their life story or you're sitting talking to a loved one who just found their deceased loved one, no matter the means, right. Or you're, you're talking to somebody who just had their world ripped out from underneath them mm-hmm. to sit there as, as is, I, I guess I would attribute it to sort of a natural reaction in human speech to be like, Oh, okay. I understand. No, you fucking don't No, Yeah. And I, that is one thing I've maintained throughout my entire career, especially now, Yes, I am moving into this role of, of recruiting and, and working on trying to establish a foundation of who the next generation of police officers is going to be, who's going to continue on after me. But I am still working as a sex crimes detective. I do not ever sit across the room, the interview room, from a victim and tell them that I understand. No, yeah. And and, and it just, again, goes to show you that, yes, we, we, we very much appreciate that there are therapists and counselors who dedicate their lives to first responders and dedicate their lives to police officers. But again, you, you've never had to wake up to a text that somebody you work with is dead. Right. And and was killed in a violent manner while doing their job. Right. Right. Or, or went into the hospital because they were ill and you're sitting there on a DV call and then they put it out over the radio in your little earpiece. And you're sitting there listening to this person talk about that. They're just super upset that they're, uh, their spouse moved the spatula to a different drawer. And yeah. in, and in your radio, you're having to hear that somebody who you worked with is dead, right? Or, or you know, the the kids. We've all seen the kids, right? We've all seen the yeah, the, the burnt cars, uh, you know? Um, yeah, I, I watched my very good friend burn to death in his patrol car. I, I was 20 feet away, and I saw him in that patrol car burning to death. And there wasn't a damn thing I could do to stop it, you know? Um, we'll talk about politics later, but you know we didn't have fire extinguishers because of politics, which is just uh, foreign to to me, right? As uh, right. where I'm at now is that I, I cannot imagine uh, not having a fire extinguisher. It was on the little checklist that we yeah. have to go through to make sure yeah. it's in your fucking car. We, every day. we eventually got one. That's because a, a SRP truck stopped and we took it off of his truck. But there was fuel burned. I mean, it was a, a 20 foot circle of fuel around the vehicle that was burning. And you could see him inside there, you know. So tell me you understand. Yeah, and you don't, right? And, and, I, and I don't. I, he was my friend. I mean, not not a, a buddy, not a coworker. I mean, I've been to his house. I knew his wife. You know, I was mentoring him to get on the SWAT team. I mean, that was my friend. We we sparred. You know, mm-hmm. we, he was a third degree black belt. 
in Kempo. And we fought like friends, you know. And uh, I stood there and watched that happen. So, no, you don't understand. No, no. And my, uh, my point to this is that I, I stood before a group of, uh, of applicants a couple weeks ago as we were, we were prepping them for their, uh, their run um, and told them, look, this is your, your very last evolution. Um, you've got an interview later on today, provided you all pass through this. Everybody who crosses that finish line within the time frame gets an interview. Um, I want you to leave everything on the table because right. when you get to your interview, you've got a couple hours until that point. I need you to formulate coherent sentences <laughs> and not make a complete dick of yourself. And that's about it. So leave it all on the table right, right here, right now. And I said, if you need any sort of motivation, eight year old me watched Columbo in my uncle's living room and really thought that was the coolest fucking job I could do. Right. I wanted to be that guy. I wanted to be that guy who solved crimes and when the criminal thought they were better, just pulled that little bit of extra that oh, there's just one more thing. One more thing. There's just one more thing. Because I am actually smarter than you. And and, and and I was able to tell this group of, of candidates, this, look, 32-year-old Kevin is now the detective that 8-year-old Kevin wanted to become. 8-year-old Kevin is proud of 32-year-old Kevin. That's awesome. Do you feel as though now, looking back, would eight-year-old Jason, would Jason hanging out in, in northern Idaho doing his Mormon mission, uh, do you think that, that younger you would just be absolutely floored at everything you have accomplished and overcome? At this point, yeah. I, I don't even know how I made it through that, but I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, yeah, can you imagine the disappointment going back to that eight-year-old and going, I missed, I missed the time by three seconds because I didn't give it all my all, that one shot that I had, you know. And that's something I had to learn the hard way with everything that I went through is that you've got one chance at this life and you don't get a participation trophy. If you want to return to live with God, that is a prize to be won. You need mm -hmm. to be the gold medalist in this life and that's going to require effort like you don't even understand at this point. Yeah. Well, this is, uh, as we as we bring our interview uh, to a close. We've covered a, a variety of, of uh, topics about your life today, and I greatly appreciate you spending, uh, I mean, you've been here over two hours, so this, this episode's going on an hour and 26, but... <laughs> well, you promised bacon, so... Uh, <laughs> and you know, I'm married to a woman who doesn't eat red meat, so you're going to you're gonna have to come back one morning, and we're going to be relegated to the patio. <laughs> Isn't there a nursery rhyme about meats all the meat and all the fat, and... Just, she, so she used to eat red meat once upon a time. And then one day she, she ate something that didn't agree with her when she was really like, I, I would say really young when she was like a teenager and just never looked back from that day forward. Uh, all right. And it's like, okay, fair enough. You do you. Um, yeah. I, I almost drowned off the coast of Maui scuba diving when I was 20. Well, I went back and got in the water, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> if, if I, if I so much as say the word bacon in this household, I, uh, yeah, bad things happen. So. Yeah. But uh, uh, you've got, Jason, before you is a microphone, a, a simple, it's plastic, it's metal, it's electronics. But there are people around the globe. Uh, I, I do check, uh, not wildly frequently, but every now and then it is cool to see exactly where everybody's listening from. And you truly do have a microphone to the world. What does the world need to hear from Jason Mao? Oh, um Wow. No pressure. No pressure. How's that one for, uh, <laughs> no, I, I actually, I, I go all over the country now and I do motivational speaking, um, talking about my story. 
and uh, a thing that I call the warrior ethos. Um, what I think is lacking more than anything else right now is personal accountability and the understanding that um, that grace is sufficient. Um, that if you truly want to change your life, if you truly want to be a warrior, and I don't mean a guy that does push-ups and carries a gun. I mean somebody that has the, the mental fortitude, has goals, refuses to quit, will not let obstacles get in their way. They turn those obstacles into opportunities. You know, people that we recognize as true warriors. Um, there's three things that you need to start doing. And the first thing is, is you need to get right with that man in the mirror. You need to be okay with who you are, right? Because who you are at this moment in time is exactly who God wants you to be. And there's a reason why you've had the challenges in your life. Um, it's like a refining fire. Uh, the only way to get bigger, faster, and stronger or to get the impurities out of your life is heat, pressure, and time. There's no other way to do it. And so you need to trust the process and be okay with who you are. The second thing you need to do is be okay with a higher power, a cause greater than yourself. Um, again, I'm not pushing my religion, but as a Christian, I believe that there's a God in heaven and that he is, he is perfect and he is loving and, and I serve him. I have to be okay with that and okay with who he is, whatever higher power it is. You need to be accountable to something outside of who you are, a cause greater than yourself. The third is that you need to understand that this is going to take work, hard, hard work. This is not something that's going to be given to you. Success is the reward for labor-intensive work. Um, no such thing as delayed gratification. That is actually an evil. It is contrary to human nature, and it is evil, and it degrades you as a human that the delayed gratification um, is the pure principle. The, the instant gratification it actually prohibits you from growth. It's the delayed gratification that pushes those roots deep down in the, in the earth and makes you, makes you sustainable when the winds come. Um, it is the only way to, to purify steel or purify ore into steel is through the refining process. This is an eternal principle that we all recognize, but we're not willing to do it ourselves, to burn the impurities out of us through heat, pressure, and time. You know, there's only one way to get stronger. <laughs> it's, it's heat, pressure, and time. There's only mm -hmm. one way to get smarter. It's heat, pressure, and time. Um, so those three things is where I would start if somebody wants to change who they are is come to grips with who you are, come to grips with a higher power, and come to grips with the, the idea that it's going to require effort and not be afraid of the pain. I like it. I've got... Uh Nothing that I can add on to that. Before we uh, before we sign off, though, you are a published author. I am, and I want to give you an opportunity uh, to educate uh, not only the listeners but myself as well as to uh, uh, what you've got published. So the first thing I did is I wrote a historical fiction series about one of my heroes. His name is Captain Moroni, and he is a, a figure in the Book of Mormon, which is a scripture book of scripture that we use in the LDS faith. And all the Book of Mormon is, is the historical record of the people that lived on the American continent before, during, and after the time of Christ. So just like the Bible in, in Israel is the historical, spiritual record of the Israelis, the Jewish people, the Book of Mormon is the historical, spiritual record of the people that worshipped Christ on the American continent. And just like in the Bible, they had heroes and wars and things like that. In the Bible, you've got 
Joshua, you've got Gideon, you've got King David, all these amazing stories about these great heroes that did amazing things. They had the same thing here. They had kings and prophets and heroes and wars and things like that. So one of the military, historical military figures was a guy named Captain Moroni, and he's a, he's a hero of mine. And he was like the George Washington of his day. And so I wrote a historical fiction series based on the story in the Book of Mormon, but it's not scripture. I don't refer to the Book of Mormon. I don't, it's no these, thousand and those and all that stuff in there. It's just the war story. And I use him as the central character. So I wrote a historical fiction. Um, and then I wrote my autobiography. Um, and then I co-wrote uh, a book on healing uh, called um, uh, Healing Through Broken Relationships. And uh, that one actually went number one on Amazon. That was pretty cool. Um, and then my, my autobiography went number one on Amazon for a while, too. That was pretty cool. Um, and I am currently in the process of writing a series of children's books um, about my dog, Duke, and his crazy adventures. Okay. So right. it's, it's one of those where you sit down with your four-year-old daughter and you read before she goes to bed and there's sure. pictures and stuff. But he's got crazy adventures. You know, he's a, he's a police dog in one, and he's a search and rescue dog in one, and he's a PTSD support dog in one. And, and there's one where he's a shepherd. He, you know, he works with the good shepherd, the good shepherd. Right, know. right. And so that's getting, I'm, I'm hoping that we'll uh, have the first one out by Christmas on that one. But all of my books can be found on Amazon. You just search my name, Jason Mao, M-O-W, and it'll pop right up. Excellent. And do you have, you've got, so you've got social media. That's how you and I uh, uh, linked up. Yeah. Uh, Facebook and Instagram, Jason Mao. I'm the big bald white guy. You can't miss me. <laughs> you know, you're like, I, well, there's another Jason Mao in there, but he's a Filipino student at Penn State. Probably not, probably not, not you. Guy. No, not yeah. the same guy. Yeah, not the That's same guy. not, these are not the Jason you're looking for. There's your <laughs> Jedi mind trick. This is not the Jason you're trying to find. Yeah. Uh, and so I, I have a pretty big social media following. I, I post stuff all the time, some motivational stuff, some funny stuff. I, I dabble into politics a little bit. You know, I, I held everybody accountable because both the left and right are messing up right now. They're, neither one of them are doing what's right. Um, and then I, I, I got a thing on social media where I do what's called, um, uh, pro marriage tips. I don't know if you've seen any of those. Couple of them. Yeah, that's really upsetting my wife. But <laughs> you know, um, it's all in good fun. It's all fun. But uh, lots of people are following me on that, and uh, you know, and then I've done some other podcasts and stuff like that. But uh, mostly, what I'm known for is just motivational speaking. I go to I go to schools and and colleges and corporate and churches and you know, police departments and stuff like that. And I just talk about what it takes to be a warrior, telling my story and how we ended up and I, I created this thing called the warrior ethos, which you can find on my sites also. It's just 15 verses of true heroic behavior. And it's got ver verses in there. Like, um, I serve a cause greater than myself. The truth is my constant companion. I will never quit retreat or cower in the face of the enemy. I'm accountable to my community and my family for my actions. All these things that we take in law enforcement for granted as what people do is, is foreign to everybody else because those kind of innate, principles aren't being taught anymore and we have an entire generation of kids that don't know that literally think one plus one could possibly be three mm -hmm. because the truth is no longer taught to our children it's all subjective and that's not a warrior what a warrior does or a warrior thinks they cling to truth because if you don't if you can't even be honest with yourself who are you then you know if you if you can't if you can't look at eternal um natural law and say, okay, yeah, gravity isn't subjective. 
Right. You know, I can't suddenly go, I don't believe in gravity, so it doesn't affect me anymore. So there are truths out there. I'll throw an apple at you. We'll see what you (laughs) don't care who you voted for. They don't care who you love. They don't, it doesn't care what your pronouns are, you know, and we have drifted so far away from, from the truth that we don't even recognize who we are as human anymore as actual human beings. Um, if somebody identifies as a cat, we treat them, we have to treat them like a cat. No, that's contrary to how a warrior thinks. A warrior clings to natural law and clings to the truth. So these are principles that I like to go out and teach. And I use my example from my own life from being wounded and my adventures in Afghanistan. And, and I did um, um, volunteer rescue work. I would go to foreign, like uh, natural disasters, like the earthquake in Haiti, Katrina, okay. stuff okay. like that. I would, I would uh, put myself, I'd pay my own way, go with a small core group of people, and we would do rescue missions and all kinds of stuff. Um, I've, I've had a pretty interesting life. And so I use all those examples on what it means to be a warrior and to serve a cause greater than yourself and, and to, to serve other people and to, to just be that person that this, this is probably a great way to end the podcast. Um, when I was going through the academy, the academy sergeant on one of the first days walked in and he said, I want you guys to close your eyes. And I want you to imagine the most vulnerable person that you know, your grandmother, your daughter, whatever, the, the single most vulnerable person. And I want you to picture that it's three o'clock in the morning and they're alone. And there are three guys outside trying to kick the door in. Now, what kind of cop would you want to be first on scene? That's who you need to be for the rest of your life. Right? And he goes, it's not, it's not that the cop is big and strong because once he's subdued everybody, now he has to deal with that vulnerable person. Mm-hmm. So he needs to be able to change and understand his audience. Right? What if that cop is, responds and that vulnerable person is a different skin color? Does that change your perspective of who that cop is? Whoever it is that you think that you would want to be first in that door, that's who you need to be for the rest of your life. And I actually took that to heart. Absolutely. As, as, as I think we all should. Right. You know, so, that, that compassion and that ability to be the, that warrior and that guardian right, right over, over the people that, so, uh, that count on us. Everything that I did from mixed martial arts training to my diet to the range time to accident investigations – I based that on being that guy that showed up first, that I could be that servant that would solve that problem for that vulnerable person, you know, and um, that's what I try to teach other people is to be that guy in whatever it is they're doing, business, religion, your family, be that guy. I couldn't have said it any better myself. And, uh, and as you said, a great way to, uh, to end the podcast, Jason, thank you so much for taking a couple hours this evening to come out and talk with me. I, uh, have uh, burned up a little bit of your, uh, your Friday night here and I greatly appreciate uh, all good, uh, of your time, man. Thank you, man. I appreciate it. This is awesome. Let's of do course. This anytime. Absolutely. We do need to do this again. Cause, uh, uh, there are topics of your life we haven't even covered yet. We could probably <laughs> sit here for two or three more hours. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry to, to have bogarted the microphone so much. No, no, no. I uh, and for the, for those of you listening, I have a standing rule on this podcast, and that is to chase the rabbit. Uh, and I, I spend so much of my life uh, putting up these like bowling alley bumpers with people when I interview them uh, to keep them on topic. Um, 
when it comes to uh, comes to this show. Um, the 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 interesting stuff is is so frequently off the beaten path, right? I yeah. I drove to the top of Mount Lemon last weekend with a buddy of mine. We took the three hour back dirt road and the switchbacks over the big rocks and all that good stuff. I could have taken the forty minute windy road up to the top, but that's, there's no fun in that. Yeah, right? What's the so, point of that? Exactly. Yeah. Uh, we did take that way down because it was getting <laughs> later in the day. <laughs> something about, uh, Oh, this does take three hours to get up. But, uh, no, that is, uh, that is my standing rule on the show. So, uh, should, uh, any of you out there listening ever, uh, ever, uh, want to come on the show by all means, uh, hit me up. If you got something that's something interesting to talk about, we'll talk about it, but, uh, I'm going to encourage you to, uh, to chase the rabbit as uh, just as uh, Jason would encourage each of us to choose victory again, Jason, thank you so much, sir. Be good to each other and be good to each other. That's something that we all need to be reminded of. I uh, appreciate each and every one of you for listening to the show. Stay safe. I'll see you on the road.